following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Proverbs 20 Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. It is honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Even the child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Do not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with bread. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger, and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but after word, his mouth will be filled with gravel. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with the lips. Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will put out in deep darkness. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord and dishonest scales are not good. Man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy, and afterward reconsider his vows. A wise king sifts out the wicked, and brings to the threshing wheel over them. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Proverbs 20. All right. Thank you, Jackson, for that. Our young people are going to go outside, not outside, well, maybe outside, I don't know, out of this room anyway, and uh, go have their Truth Trackers class. Hope you guys have your verses ready. And enjoy that time of instruction. <laughs> All right. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel. Welcome. If you're joining us online, we know we had a little technical difficulty. We'll chalk it up to that uh, this evening. And uh, so you missed uh, our song service. Uh, Crown him with many crowns and uh, bow the knee and help me out here. Arise, my soul, arise. And... Uh, May the Lord find us faithful. Thank you. I knew it, Dwayne. I just had to spit it out. 
Okay, so very nice uh, uh, time of hymns, and you caught Jackson there uh, reading in Proverbs 20. A very good section of Scripture. But we're in Matthew chapter 4 tonight for our message. If you would turn there and join me as we look at the chapter, we've uh, addressed already the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ as he begins his public ministry. We saw the uh, move of the Lord that he made from, uh, to Capernaum in Galilee. That's in chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. This is just after John had been put in prison. He departed to Galilee, it says in verse 12, then in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, Capernaum, uh, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then we see the quotation uh, from Isaiah about the uh, land of darkness, in effect, uh, seeing a great light, Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, referring to the passageway that Gentiles would use into, into and out of Israel as they came through the, uh, from the north and from the east, they'd come through this region to enter into uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 42, we looked at in reference to those quotations, uh, to that quotation rather. And then it says in verse 17, and this is where we focused a bit more of our time, that Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I argued that this is the exact same message that John the Baptist brought to the people. That was in uh, Matthew chapter 3 where uh, he uh, said in verse number 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is obviously a summary of the longer preaching that they offered, but the big point of it was to repent because God's kingdom was about to show up, and uh, you had to do that in order to be rightly related to the king. Give homage to the son, Psalm 2 will say, or uh, kiss the son, in other words, so that you will be rightly related to him. If you're not, you're not going to be part of his kingdom, you're going to be one of his enemies, and uh, that's not a good side <clears throat> excuse me, to be on. So repent. We spent some time looking at that notion of repentance. I, uh, in addition, uh, made the case that not only is this message the same as John's message before, but it's the same as our message today. We still preach essentially the same thing. Now, we wouldn't be able to say technically that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because the king is not on the scene like he was then. Are you with me? The reason that we could say it was at hand, or John could say that, and Jesus, because he was there offering the kingdom to them. And uh, they, of course, rejected it. And so uh, the parables were told then that the kingdom would be withheld, the kingdom would be delayed, postponed, set aside, and it would be given to a generation bearing the fruits of it. And so there's clearly a delay inserted into the program of God, not not like a plan B, of course not. God knew this all along, that this was going to happen. But from the human perspective, there's a genuine offer. Then there's a pulling back of that offer when it was rejected, and uh, that would be given at a later time. But uh, the repentance is still current today. It must be preached. It's a key part of the gospel message. If somebody ever says to you, well, John's gospel doesn't mention repentance, don't, don't take that that silly argument. John's gospel has the idea of repentance in it, even though it doesn't use the word. Paul's ministry was full of uh, preaching of repentance. He talks about God granting you repentance unto life. Don't despise the goodness of God that does that. 
Uh, he said in Acts chapter uh, 26, let's see if we can find this one, Acts 26 and uh, 19. It says, uh, Paul testifying here, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, that is what he received at the beginning of his ministry, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Here's what he's telling King Agrippa. He's saying, my whole ministry from the beginning until now is this, that the people should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That's the whole summary of the, of the ministry that he had. And so Paul is calling people to repent, and uh, there's no indication in Scripture that this message is set aside or changed uh, today, okay? All right, so that's repentance. Mankind's part in the message of the gospel is to repent. God's message, God's part in the message of the gospel is to bring his kingdom and also to provide a way for them to have an effectual repentance that is through the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so that summarizes where we were. Now verse 18, and let me read from 18 to the end of the chapter, and we'll treat these verses a little more slowly. It says in verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Think of that. And Jesus went about all Galilee... And I want you to see what he was doing there, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Again, another way of summarizing his ministry. He's he's traveling, he's uh, teaching, he's preaching the gospel, and he's healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, I've put teaching and preaching together, so I've got the traveling, the teaching, and then we have the healing Uh, three major elements to his ministry. Verse 24, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Just noticing now in verse 24, it's interesting how they have these categories of illness, diseases and torments, demon possession, and they they distinguish that from epileptic and paralytic. Quite interesting, isn't it, what they they knew about these conditions. They could see them, they could describe them. Of course, they didn't know as well as we do maybe what caused the the, uh, non-demon possession cases, but still... And still, in fact, today we don't even really understand many of these things. Epilepsy, why? Um, Or some forms of paralysis, why? But let's go back to verse 18. Uh, Jesus calls Simon, Peter. He calls Andrew, he calls James, and he calls John in these four or five verses here, verses 18 through 22. From what we know of the whole timeline of events, the Lord Jesus had met these men before the events recorded here. So this is kind of a quick jump start into Jesus' ministry. 
This was not a cold calling uh, that was made to them. Um, sometimes, especially when I was younger and I read this, I thought, wow, Jesus walking along and he sees Simon Peter and Andrew for the very first time and says, follow me. And, and they just dropped everything and they started following him. They didn't even know who he was. Wow, amazing. <laughs> you know? uh, no, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, turn to John chapter uh, 1. John chapter 1. It makes, it makes for good preaching, uh, you know, but uh, you have to fit together things a little bit better than that. John chapter 1, verse 40. John is uh, speaking. Remember, John has been announcing the coming of the Messiah. He saw Jesus uh, earlier in chapter 1 as uh, coming, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's been in- introduced to John's disciples and uh, a larger body of people. Verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, that is Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So he's introduced to Jesus through the ministry of John the Baptist. He's seen or heard about probably the Lord's baptism and the, the dove and the Spirit of God and all these things. And so it says, And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Okay, so this wasn't a cold call that Jesus made at this time, but now it was time for their relationship to solidify into uh, leader-follower, into teacher-disciple, into lord and servant in a, in a more formal way, and he brought them along with him. He called them to to the work. He invited them to come. Yea, we could say better, he commanded them to come. He called to them and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is imperative. It is a command. This is a call to the vocation of discipleship and and more than that, apostleship is really what I should say. A call to vocational ministry, if you will. He promised that he would change them in occupation from fishermen to fisher of men. They would minister to people now instead of killing fish. I suppose that's an upgrade in profession. They were immediately obedient, and the appropriate preparations had evidently already been made in their hearts to follow Christ. God had worked, and these men had considered their ways, and they knew that they had to go and follow follow the Lord. And I think That's why, in one sense, why this doesn't make sense to be a cold call. That is the first time that they ever met. They've they've been prepared, and this is how God works, doesn't he? He prepares the hearts, the soil, plants the seed, waters, brings the increase little by little. And uh, I I can reflect on times in my life when God was working, and it took a lot of of thought out of me, (laughs) you know, a lot of energy, a lot of a lot of uh, conviction, a lot of considering uh, what my ways would be. And so he called them, and then it says they immediately left their nets and followed him, meaning they left behind their property, they left behind the tools of their profession in order to follow Christ. To one extent or another, a call to vocational ministry means that you will be leaving behind other things in life that you might have liked to do or you could have done, even things that are not wrong to do, like making an honest living as a fisherman. 
Sometimes those things have to be left behind to do something that is a higher calling, not a, not a uh, righteous, more righteous calling necessarily, but a higher calling for God. For a minister of the gospel who is not bivocational or cannot be bivocational, this is especially true, he has to just walk away from that work that he was doing. And I personally can give a, a, some, a small illustration of that, nothing like what these men did in my own life. But it reminds me of the broader principle that when we become Christians, not just when we, if we become ministers, but when we become Christians, we do leave behind things, do we not? <laughs> yes. What exactly have you left behind? Or perhaps you're in that initial days, weeks, months, even few years of your faith when you're doing battle with certain things that you need to, to, to leave behind. I think we've all experienced that, haven't we? We've, yeah. I left, I left that, but it's still trying to drag me back into it, you know, and I've got to get, get away from there. I've got to leave that behind. So I'm not saying that, that nets and boats and fishermen jobs are, are pictures of those kinds of things. Really, I'm thinking of the weights that entangle us and slow us down, the sin that so easily besets. This is like a picture of that, but these things aren't that. These were just fine things that they were doing, and they were called away to a higher calling, and they're just likened to what we're called away from when we are saved from our sin. Now, then Jesus goes on, and he sees two other brothers. Now, they were of the same trade, I suspect. They all well knew each other in this trade as uh, maybe not exactly co-workers, maybe not exactly uh, you know cutthroat competitors, I don't know, but they probably knew each other. And he saw James and John, sons of Zebedee, in the boat with their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father. So they react similarly to Peter and to Andrew. The text says they left two things, the boat, all their fishing stuff, and their business, and their dad. That's quite a change of career in one fell swoop. I would like to hope that their dad was encouraging in the matter, but we don't know, do we? Um, we see a little bit about their mother, James and John, later on in the Gospels, but it doesn't really give us an indication about their dad's uh, idea of them leaving the family business. Even if he was encouraging to them, can you imagine the mixed feelings you would have? Here I am side by side with son one and son two, and we're in this business together. Every day we're working together. We can spend time together, and now they've been called off to something wonderful, gospel ministry, is going to end up costing them their lives or you know, their freedom. And I'm not going to have my two best working partners anymore. Even if it was a positive thing, it would still be kind of a sad thing to see his sons move on to another field. Now, turn to Mark chapter 10. For both of these pairs of men, pairs of brothers, the Bible gives us uh, something that's an encouragement for them and for us. Mark chapter 10, verse, we'll start in 23. 
about leaving houses or lands or fishing boats and fathers and nets. In verse 23 says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I do take that literally. That's a, that's a, 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 how can you say, it's a hyperbolic statement. He's saying, look, if you could stuff a camel through the eye of a little sewing needle, that'd be easier than than getting into heaven for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. By the way, we were speaking uh, about some groups of people who teach specifically that they don't take the Bible literally. Uh, Like the resurrection passages uh, that we looked at this morning. You know, they, they, they don't want to take the resurrection to be a bodily, literal resurrection. And I think... I think it's kind of simple uh, to analyze that and say, well, they don't want to take the Bible literally because they don't want to obey the Bible literally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they don't want to, to have to deal with it. So more convenient to spiritualize it away. Um, so it's impossible with men. It's, it's possible with God, however. Then verse 28 says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So they were not like the rich man who Jesus was dealing with here who went away sad because he had many possessions. Didn't want to give them away, didn't want to admit his idolatry to those things. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. I I reflect on our brothers and sisters in more persecuted lands that when they become saved, they do leave their family or their family pushes them out the door. They leave, they lose, they're persecuted. You know, for us, we don't know a lot of that. We, I mean, some of us do. Some of us, I mean, broadly speaking, Christians. But in, in, the, in the West or in the United States, and many of us have been able to have very comfortable existences and have wonderful families and wives and fathers and mothers and all of that. Those are nice things. But I think this, these verses are going to really come to application for these poor ones among the saints who have really left everything. And you'll see in the kingdom of heaven and beyond in the heavenly state, I think, and without any jealousy, without any covetousness, you will see that they have been rewarded according to their sacrifice. And uh, you might not get you know, see or experience as much reward as they have in a sense, but you will be so happy for them because they have been rewarded and vindicated after all of the life struggle that they have gone through. Can you imagine? Your parents disown you. Your siblings disown you. 
you have nothing, you have to flee for your life in some cases, or you spend time in jail just for the Bible. It's crazy to think about. But those people will have a reward in heaven that is beyond what we can imagine here. So if they have left something, they will receive something. And so leaving a fishing boat, a father, nets, it'll all work out. God will see to it. Now, Jesus has four followers now with eight more to go. Or maybe I could say seven plus one, seven and a half. Um, If you look in Matthew chapter 9, you'll see uh, Matthew's own calling. It says, as Jesus passed on from there in Matthew 9, 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And so then he had an interaction with all the other tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and and other disciples with regard to that. Um, And then all of them are listed, all of the disciples are listed in the early verses of Matthew chapter 10. He called uh, the 12 apostles, and they're Simon, called Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So by chapter 10, the whole set of disciples is rounded out, but here we have the first four. We could say the kind of most prominent four of of the disciples. You remember also in John's gospel, we were there earlier, but in chapter 1, where uh, the calling of Nathaniel occurred, Philip and Nathaniel, and can any good thing come out of Nazareth and all of that? So you had that interaction as well. All right, verse 23, Jesus, ministry, consisted of three things, traveling, teaching, and healing. Traveling, teaching, and healing. That's what summarizes his work. First of all, traveling. Very briefly, initially he was traveling around Galilee, doing these ministries, and then he went beyond that to Decapolis, ten cities. That's the short form of that idea of ten cities, and the rest of Israel, up and down, out to Caesarea at one point in Matthew chapter 16. And the travel served a need for him to do what? See people and teach them. He couldn't just stay in one place, couldn't have isolation. Um, God saw to it there was no pandemic to keep him at home under lockdown. (laughs) He had to go out. He had to preach. For this reason, I came to preach the gospel. I have to go to the other towns and villages, he said. I can't just stay in one place. I have to see all these people, thousands upon thousands of people. He had to see as much as he could. So that put him in contact with the people to give them the gospel. And somehow, by hook or by crook, I'll say, we have to see people. We have to be able to connect with people, technologically, personally, by voice, whatever. We have to connect with people. And that's a real burden because I'm thinking of, I was just over there praying while we were singing and thinking of uh, just now, thinking of Christie's comment and the not only the fact that you have for one year elderly people isolated to themselves, they're not hearing the gospel. 
They're not touched by the lives of Christians who can show them the love of Christ. They're in utter, I mean, hum, humans, humanly speaking, it's awful. But spiritually speaking, it's even worse. And many of them dying without being attended even by their own family. Barbarism. The gospel is not getting to these dear ones, my friend. That is criminal. You have to be in touch with people. Jesus had to travel to minister the gospel to these ones. And then it says he was teaching, not only traveling, but teaching. It says teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm just going to kind of meld together teaching and preaching here. When, when is it one and when is it the other? When is it turned from preaching to teaching or teaching to preaching? Uh, it doesn't really matter for my purposes in this message tonight. He was proclaiming the truth. He was uh, exhorting them in the truth and so on. And he was doing so, it says, in their synagogues. The synagogues uh, kind of pop up because of the Babylonian captivity. They were away from the temple, but they wanted to meet still. They knew the importance of that. And so the, the synagogue became their meeting place and continued on right up into the first century and, and, of course, until today. Now, the synagogue was a place of assembly, but interestingly enough, later... I don't even know if it's later, really. The idea came to be that the synagogue was not the building. Just like we say the church is not the building, the synagogue is the people. The church is the people. They had that notion. Synagogues would have been found dotting the landscape around Galilee for at least one practical reason. You had to walk there. You can't have a synagogue every 50 miles because you had to be able to go there easily. Uh, on the Sabbath day. It could not be difficult for the members. There was a synagogue in Nazareth, Matthew 13, and verse 54, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. And then in Mark chapter 1, it says uh, this in verse 21, then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. And taught them. So there are two local synagogues there, not local churches, but local synagogues taught in this, uh, this section of the Gospels. So he went there and he was teaching in them. Now, synagogues, uh, there's interesting whole study, and you can look at it online if you want sometime about the architecture of them maybe three doors facing Jerusalem, uh, seating on three sides with benches and floor space, and then a, a raised platform. Perhaps a menorah was there for. And there would be the place where the speaker would be. There's the, uh, there was Moses' seat. and You'd read the scriptures from that place. The Lord talked about that in Matthew chapter 23. There was floor seating. People would sit on the floor. Uh, it could be a dirt floor. It wouldn't necessarily be a beautiful mosaic floor like you might think now just because of uh, financial constraints. Um, and then there was the bench seating. And that was for the you know, higher-ups. And so remember what the Lord said about the, the Pharisees. They love to go out making their prayers in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues, okay? Now, one source suggested in my brief research on this that there were as many as 50 synagogues in the Galilee region. Can you imagine that? 50. 
That's a task. To get to each one of those and minister there. I mean, if you're going to minister in one meeting every week, that takes a year to get to all those synagogues. Maybe you could go at different times or whatever. One of the densest centers of synagogues anywhere in the world was in Galilee at that time because it was the hub and center of the Jewish religion. Depending on location, there could be uh, quite a number of people in the synagogue or it could be very small. Uh, I suspect, this is not, I don't know this, but I suspect that attendance or turnout, if you will, was a little higher than what we experience today. If you take the whole population of Ann Arbor, I wonder how many of the 115,000 people in Ann Arbor actually went to church today. But in ancient Israel, the synagogue was the center of life and activity. You, you went there, okay? Uh, so I think the percentage of people that went out to synagogue was probably a bit higher than what we see in Christian churches today in Western secular society. I give a couple of quotes here in my notes on this. Interesting, I think. Local elders governed the synagogue, a kind of democracy. While all adult members of the community could belong to the synagogue, only adult males age 13 or older could be elders. A local caretaker, unfortunately sometimes called the ruler of the synagogue in the Bible, is called the Hazan, was responsible for maintaining the building and organizing the prayer services. Uh, this would be like a Jairus, remember, a ruler of the synagogue. He was like the organizer of it. The Hazan was sometimes the teacher of the synagogue school, especially in smaller villages. He would announce the coming Sabbath with blasts on the shofar or ram's horn. Although the Hazan was in charge of worship services, the prayer leader, readers, and even the one who delivered the short sermon could be any adult member of the community. All were recognized as being able to share the meaning of God's word as God had taught them in their daily walk with him. It would be kind of a testimony sort of meeting. In this way, the community encouraged even its youngest members to be active participants in its religious life. Jesus' encounter with the wise teachers in the temple courts was unusual not so much because of his age, but because of the wise questions that he asked there. The Hazan also cared, cared for the Torah scrolls and other sacred writings and brought them out at the appropriate times. Remember in Luke chapter 4 when the Lord uh, was, uh, read the scriptures and said, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he, he had to take the scroll from the attendant and make sure uh, and get there to the place and read it and then return it to him. Priests and Levites were welcome to participate in synagogue life, including worship, but they had no special role except that only priests could offer the blessing of Aaron from the Torah at the end of the service. You know that blessing, don't you? That's a great word, that blessing. Numbers 6, 24 to 27, at that end of that chapter about the Nazarite, the Lord bless you and keep you. You'll, you hear me say parts of that at different times. Then there's another part of this article that I've excerpted here. Boys and girls went to school in Galilee um, as it makes me think of the kind of old times in our country, we had the church house, which was a place where social meetings took place and the place where school could have been. And would to God that our students would be learning in churches today. We have regressed in that manner in our own society. 
boys continued till they were 15 years old if they displayed unusual ability, while the girls were married by 15. Students probably attended school in the synagogue and were taught by the Chazan or local Torah teacher. Study began at age five or six in elementary school called Beit Sefer. The subject was the Torah, and the method was memorization. Since the learning of the community was passed orally, memorization of tradition and God's word were essential. Can you imagine? You don't have, you don't have a book. The only thing you have is what you carry with you in your mind. Yeah. What Jesus taught was the gospel of the kingdom. It says he went about teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't make it more complicated than that. Um, If you repent, you can participate in that kingdom. This is where confusion begins in in the modern church. Notice that it doesn't say that he preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He couldn't do that because it hadn't happened yet. He did later, of course, express those truths to his disciples, but he did not, excuse me, he did not preach the church. He preached the kingdom. Now, we preach the same saving message that he did, the need for repentance, but we do not preach that we are in the kingdom or even that the kingdom of heaven is immediately at hand. We are in the church. Let's Drive that home in our minds. We're not in the kingdom, we're in the church. We're not in the kingdom, we're in the church. Okay. Drive that home. That will help you to avoid all kinds of confusion and heresy and error. We proclaim the kingdom is still coming. It's a bit of a distance off yet, given that the tribulation has to unfold first. Last part of Jesus' ministry. And before I get there, let me just mention verse 25. As he is doing this teaching and traveling and then healing, which we'll look at in a moment, notice the crowds. What a phenom. You know, what a phenomena this whole situation was. Great crowds followed him from all of these places, Galilee, Decapolis, the other side of of Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan, all up and down the nation of Israel, hundreds and thousands of people looking for the teaching of the Lord and especially probably his healing and maybe free food, as we saw see in John chapter 6. But one of the reasons they came was because of his healing. You know, people, people, people won't come out, it seems like uh, sometimes, you know, they won't come out to church, but they will never miss a doctor's appointment. You ever notice that? Never miss a doctor's appointment. But church, eh, you know, we'll get there if we can. Healing the sick. This miraculous activity, however, was not just to help them. It was to authenticate Jesus as a prophet of God, more than a prophet, in fact, and also to raise his profile in the surrounding regions of Syria. This drew large crowds of people who wanted to be healed. What they really needed, however, was spiritual healing. Physical healing, however, did serve to bring them into contact with Jesus' teaching, so it had that kind of benefit. And the healing did a third thing. Not not only authenticated him, not only drew that crowd and connected them to him, but it did a third thing, and that was to connect Jesus to the kingdom promises of the Old Testament. Consider, for instance, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 6. 
Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and so on. You have both the bodily healing and also the healing of nature there, and that is a kingdom promise that the Lord was showing he was connected to. He was giving a preview of coming attractions, preview of what would occur in the kingdom with his appearing. Um, Can you imagine in his humiliation, in his weakness, he comes and he works miracles, nearly wiping out disease in the nation of Israel during his short span of ministry. Everybody who came to him was healed. Hundreds and thousands, perhaps, of people. They're not written here in detail. But can you imagine how if he did that in his humiliation, what he's going to do in his exaltation when he is, when he is in his kingdom? That's going to be something else. The unbelief of the people, however, cut off the inauguration of the kingdom. He could not do many mighty works even in his own home country because, the Bible says, of their unbelief, Matthew 13, 58. They did not accept the kingdom. Now, notice this healing is miraculous, unlike that which is done today by those who operate dental clinics or hospitals who use normal means. As good and wonderful providences as those things are, as needful as hospitals are because of the suffering of humanity and the sin-cursed condition of our world, today they are not miraculous work. They are merely benevolence work. They are not healing like Jesus healed. Now, some weeks back we had a question in one of our Q&A sessions about this matter of miraculous healing, and I just wanted to touch that again after being able to think about it a little bit more. The gift of healing is certainly obsoleted and not given today because it would serve no authenticating purpose to a messenger who is supposed to be of God. That's done and gone. That, the signs of the apostle are finished. And God has told us that the partial is set aside in favor of the whole, and we argued that was the completed canon of Scripture. And the foundation of the church has been settled. There's no more need for additional foundation to be built. So, the idea of miraculous healings, people being given the gift to do this is not feasible today. Now, I cannot categorically say, based on Scripture texts, that direct divine healings do not occur. I can't say that because I don't, I, I don't find that in 1 Corinthians 13 or the other passages of, uh, regarding cessationism. But cessationism has all to do with the giving of these gifts to individuals to exercise them. So I can't say that no no direct divine healings occur categorically, but I cannot prove that they do either. They certainly could happen if the only constraint was God's power because God's power is, is infinite. But several issues weigh against counting on a miracle in healing and and then weigh against the notion of praying for a miracle. And I give five reasons for this. First of all, the purpose of miracles given uh, that we talked about above was to authenticate the ministry of the one who did the healing. 
private or obscure healings today do not serve that purpose at all. So that's one reason that weighs against this idea of miraculous healing. Second, the miracles connected Jesus coming to the coming of the kingdom. Those purposes, or that purpose rather, is not at play in the healing of an individual today. Third, miracles are very rare events. That's why they're miracles. <laughs> if they were common, they wouldn't be miracles, uh, at, least, uh, at least in this age or in, 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 in any age up to the uh, millennial kingdom. Save for the miracle of regeneration. I do take that regeneration is a, an intervention of God in nature. We would not naturally come to faith in Christ unless God intervened and salvation is of the Lord. So I take that to be a working that I would call a miraculous working. But that's still rare by comparison to the mass of humanity, isn't it? There are few that find the narrow way. And only during a few seasons in the past 6,000 years have there even been outbreaks of miracles. Think of those seasons in your mind. In the Bible, when did miracles occur? You know, what groups or bunches of miracles occurred? Well, there's the creation, of course. Let's set that aside because that was necessary. Um, you have the time period of Moses and uh, Aaron and the Exodus from Egypt, many miracles. You have Elisha and Elijah, many miracles. You have Jesus and the apostles, many miracles. Other than that, not many miracles. Most of the thousands of years of human history, God has not decided to intervene in any kind of direct way that we know of. Fourth reason, the ways against asking God for a miracle healing. If a healing miracle occurred, we would not know it unless God told us because there's no one around to confirm or verify what happened. We could chalk up a, a, a remarkable healing to a providential turn of events, good doctoring, a stronger immune system, a miracle drug, or the like. But we would have to be told if it was from God, to be sure. Five, biblical miracles are typically quite spectacular. Today, that's not the case. At least to the observers, however few or many those observers may be, the miracle is stupendous and cannot be explained by normal means. Think with me of the widow's oil. You cannot explain that by normal means. I mean, I don't know how big her initial cruise of oil was, but she kept pouring and pouring and pouring. And the only thing that hindered them was they ran out of jars and buckets and containers that they would fetch from their neighbors and everything. They didn't have probably 55-gallon drums, or she would have been pouring all day. A tremendous miracle. But only a few observers in that case, her and her sons, of course, Elisha. The crossing of the Red Sea had thousands of observers. The witnesses to the risen Christ numbered in the, in the hundreds. But of course, despite all the witnesses, isn't it true that the doubters abounded? In the New Testament era, in ancient Egypt, I mean, can you imagine Pharaoh hardening his heart in light of some of these things that were just beyond human explanation? Just incredible. Doubters, 
galore, even today. No amount of persuasion can convince them that these things were acts of God. Of course, it's a little ironic today that when some bad thing happens, the insurance company says it's an act of God. (laughs) They don't even believe in God. Why are they saying that? Well, some of them do, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, a lightning strike or a tornado. Uh, I was just listening about the tornado in uh, Oklahoma and Moore, uh, 1999, EF5, strongest tornado ever recorded on the face of the earth, over 300 mile an hour movement of material, winds, just, I mean, damaging beyond belief. 4,000 plus homes, totally just gone, leveled. Incredible an act of God, they say. But that wasn't a miracle. That was just a work of nature. Of course, God put it in place and controls it and all of that, but through normal means. Well, today we fancy ourselves far wiser than those of old and may think that there are naturalistic explanations for any or all of the events that we call miracles. So for these five reasons, I would not recommend praying for a miracle, healing. Pray for healing if you believe that it's God's will, but do not ask God to do it by one means or another. In other words, I'm thinking of the the question kind of presented the situation, should I ask God, God, please do a miracle? I'm saying I, I wouldn't ask God to do that. If God's will is for healing, then I would pray that he heal with whatever means he deems fit to give. It may be that he will have you come through the trial like he did with Job. Poor Job. Long hours, days, and weeks of suffering. Without a miracle, but he did come through it. Over the years, I'll confess that I've become less enthusiastic about praying for healing uh, of any sort. And the reason I say that is not to say that I don't believe that God permits people to be healed or that people are from the illnesses they have, but I've seen many a case where healing does not occur. And often, in my estimation, it's that that's because it's God's will that it not occur. Well, in fact, if it doesn't occur, then it was God's will that it not occur. Say of a terminal disease... God's will was not to heal principally because he's bringing them to the end of their earthly sojourn. That is, after all, what the end of all mankind is, isn't it? Death. To pray against that by asking for a miracle or other healing regardless of the will of God is unwise. We always have to be praying in accordance with the will of God. More important is to pray for grace. The grace of salvation or the grace of comfort and consolation in the midst of illness and death. However that grace of God looks, we beseech Him for that and we ask Him. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for somebody to be healed. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if somebody has terminal cancer and it's pretty obvious what God is doing, then we need to submit to that, you know? Um, So... So even if God does perform stealth healing miracles in this age, however frequent, I wouldn't advocate for praying for that as such. Inquire of the Lord to heal by whatever means he deems appropriate or none at all, if that's his will. And make use of the special medical means that God has made available to you. See, there's the, the whole other side that says, well, I'm not, even, 
I'm not going to go to the doctors. I'm just going to trust God. Well, sometimes you trust God by going to the doctors. Use those means that God has made available to you. And when those means run out, thank him for what he's done in your life. Lest this discourage you entirely and you begin to flag in your prayer for those who are sick, remember this. When I say flag, I mean falter. Remember this. Going only to the physicians and leaving God out of the equation displeases the Lord. Remember Second Chronicles? Old Asa, diseased in his feet, didn't seek the Lord, sought the physicians, but left God behind. That doesn't please God. So don't, don't stop praying. Just because miracles may not happen does not mean God does not permit healing to occur through other means, and it certainly doesn't mean that God has cast you off. Uh, he may just be calling you heavenward through that illness that you are suffering. And so that's kind of my longer form answer to that question about praying for a miracle in healing. So hopefully that is helpful. If you want to go through and listen to that again, maybe you can pick out uh, the, key, the key parts as, as I mentioned them. So we've learned about Jesus as, as a light to those in Zebulun and Naphtali and to the world, as a preacher of repentance, as one who calls people to minister for him like the disciples, the apostles, and as a healer and a preacher of the kingdom of God. And so we have to take his ministry and it forms a pattern, a paradigm for our own, but that has to be modified because we're not miraculous healers, we're not Jesus the kingdom of God is a little farther off than it was then when the kingdom was present, but we modify our message around those parameters with the same exact gospel truth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. You must be born again to see that kingdom. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Critical, critical things. Next, we'll see Matthew chapter 5, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, and our Lord's teaching, which has been often relegated to mere ethics but it's more than mere ethics. We'll see next time. Father, and thank you for the word tonight. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for these clear words, for the history of the calling of the apostles and the kind of summary fashion in which the Lord's ministry is addressed with his travel, with his teaching and preaching, and with his healing, the crowds, and the ministry of the gospel of repentance. Thank you, Lord, for this. He's showing it to us, helping us to understand it better, meditating on your word. And I pray that it has improved us in some measure this evening as we've done this study. In Jesus' name, amen.